like a really important thing to see in the conversations actually shifting of not just diversity on like a face value, but who that diversity can actually pull up and reach at the same time as doing the work. Welcome everyone to 100 Climate Conversations at the Powerhouse Museum. As always, I'd like to begin by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the ancestral homelands upon which the Powerhouse Museums are situated. We respect their elders, ancestors, and recognise their sovereignty was never ceded. To the Gadigal people, whose land this talk is being recorded on, I acknowledge that the colonisation of this continent started here. I acknowledge your resistance and your resilience, and that despite violent attempts, your cultures, peoples, your waters, your animals, your land is still here. The series presents 100 visionary Australians that are taking positive action to respond to the most critical issue of our time, the climate crisis. Today is number 65 of 100 conversations happening every Friday. And we thank you for tuning into the podcast every week and to our live audience for your ongoing support. We're recording live today in the Boiler Hall of the Powerhouse Museum. Before it was home to the museum, it was the Ultimo Power Station. Built in 1899, it supplied coal-powered electricity to Sydney's tram system right into the 1960s. So in the context of this architectural artefact, we're going to be shifting our focus forward to the innovations of the net zero revolution. My name is Rachel Hocking and I'm a Walpuri woman from the Tanami Desert. Sitting next to me is Grace Vegasana, the Climate and Racial Justice Director at the Australian Youth Climate Coalition and a Board Director of the Australian Conservation Foundation, the Foundation for Young Australians and Sweltering Cities. She recently completed a double degree of Environmental and Climate Science and Law at Macquarie University and she's passionate about empowering young people to forge systemic solutions to the climate crisis. And she actually graduated on Monday. So please put your hands together for Grace Vegasada. Can you tell me about how your childhood growing up in Western Sydney shaped your awakening? Yeah, so I grew up and was born in a rural mining town, um, copper and nickel mining in the outskirts of Francistown in Botswana, um, which is in southern Africa. And so I think growing up in that situation where you're in such close proximity to energy and like mining combined with like ancestral like ties to southeast India and the coast is a pretty common story of migration to Western Sydney. So Western Sydney has a huge heap of diversity. It has a region that speaks 200 languages. It's the most diverse section of this continent in terms of like cultural, linguistic and religious diversity. And I think something that I really remember growing up in Western Sydney was like really feeling the heat and really being confused when I would go from the train line, the really sweaty, sticky train line from Blacktown where I live into the city or to the beach on like day trips with my family. And I remember being like, wow, like it's literally 10 degrees cooler in the city with the coastal breeze than it is in Western Sydney where I'm living every day. I'm going to school, playing in the parks. I'm like seeing my friends and my family. And I remember like noticing the different patterns of people who lived in Western Sydney versus people who lived in the city and how much wider the city was and how little diversity there really was in like areas where we were going to the beach. 
And then, yeah, I kind of like grew up noticing all of these patterns, whether they were like class differences, race differences, um, heat and temperature differences of like how the climate was actually changing over time. But it was when I was 14, when I was sitting in a year nine science class, and I remember climate change being mentioned in literally one sentence of like, global warming is happening. It's not very good anyways. And then we like wow. continued on. And I think that really stuck with me because I was like, what do you mean? What is global warming? This sounds like a terrible concept. Was that, that the happening. first time you'd heard it? Yeah, that was pretty much the first and only time that it was like explicitly said throughout my entire schooling curriculum. And so, yeah, that was a really stark moment for me where I was like, I think there's more to it than this, surely. And throughout high school was kind of like encouraged by teachers to unpack some of the like, systems that I was sort of seeing and picking apart at. Yeah. And yeah, I had really great teachers throughout high school and like in year 12 particularly who encouraged me to like look at how like colonization impacts the world around us and Western Sydney and our lives. Um, how migration patterns impact us, how different connections to communities do, how capitalism plays into the way that people experience life and live. And so, yeah, I felt really privileged to like have like teachers and the support system to challenge the one-liner I received and I think I was like really glad to actually probably be the last generation of like school students to get through an entire full 18-year course of kindy to year 12 without climate change really being on the curriculum at all yeah um, and if it wasn't on the curriculum at least hearing about it in like outside the world in news cycles in the way that school strikes were playing out or kind of public education was happening and so yeah, I was really 14 when I was like, hmm, there's something wrong. What's going on? I want to break that down a little bit and what else was going on for you because you, you obviously had this moment in a, in a science class where what should have been the exact right environment to be unpacking and learning more about it ended up being a place that um, became a barrier to more learning. And at the same time, you've told me about these experiences throughout your childhood growing up in Western Sydney where you started to notice you know, the soles of your shoes melting when you're walking to school because of how hot the bitumen is. So you obviously had some questions. When did you start to formulate those questions and how important was that response from those teachers? I think you said humanities teachers in particular <laughs> who responded to those questions. Yeah, I think a classic time was, it was definitely the hizzy like humanities faculty that were like, there are kind of bigger forces at play. Like it's not just about looking at the science, it's actually about intersecting crises that we're experiencing in our world, whether that's like environmental, in like social, economic crises. And so the climate crisis is very much, comes together at the intersection of all of these different things. It's not just like a matter of fossil fuels and energy and solar panels. It's very much about the different ways that our world interacts with each other. A lot of the work that I do is like actually moving us beyond the climate action framework of very like technocratic technology based solutions of like we need more solar panels, we need them faster, we need to transition away from like fossil fuels and coal and gas and oil. It's actually about looking at the way that communities and particularly young people are actually being impacted by climate change in their lives right now but in their lives in the world they inherit. And so, yeah, the work that we do for climate justice is the acknowledgement that the climate crisis is not fair or just. It's an intersecting crisis of economic, of social, of environmental issues, of literally anything that you can think of in the world. 
is really impacted by climate change. That's right. Yeah. Let's break that down in just a little bit. But before we get there, I want to find out when you first heard about the Australian Youth Climate Coalition and what were your steps to joining? Yeah, I remember when I was in year 12, I was like searching through so many different ways of like, what is climate change? I think was the first thing I Googled because I was like, oh, people keep talking about this thing, but I actually don't know what this is at all. And so I think, yeah, I did more and more searching around it. And the name that kind of kept popping up through all of my Google searches was the Australian Youth Climate Coalition. And I remember being like, that's a very self-explanatory name. It's does work in Australia, it does work with youth, it does work on the climate, it has a coalition, that makes sense. And so, yeah, I think this was just a name that I kept seeing and I was like, eventually like, I've got to sign up. Like I would love to actually learn something at the very least about this. And explain what you mean by sign up. So what sort of things were they offering to people like yourselves? Yeah, I remember the first thing I saw was the about page um, and it was like talking about climate justice. And I was like, I have no idea what those words are but it did like a bit of an explainer of climate justice being about the people who affected the worst have done the least to cause the problem. And I think something that was really different for me with the AYCC was that it did the work to actually educate young people on how the climate crisis isn't just a really huge abstract concept that's super far away, so like world away, it's a global issue. It's actually about the intentional and traceable, clear steps and decisions that were made by people in power who have the influence to create change, to actually intentionally destroy Indigenous land everywhere, to burn fossil fuels for profit, to export instead of like transitioning to renewable energy. Like it's the really everyday intentional choices that are made. And I think, yeah, for me, it was AYCC's like about page being like, this is what it is. Like, it's not just an environmental issue. It's not just about the trees in your backyard. It's actually about the systems at play, whether that be colonisation and the, like, the ongoing impacts of mining on First Nations land. It's about capitalism and the way that the people who are impacted the most are people who don't have any option but to work in really harmful industries or who bear the brunt of like impacts because they live in areas that have been effectively sacrificed in order to reap economic wealth for the 1%. It's about the patriarchy and the way that energy jobs are valued over care jobs and community jobs. And so I think it was that front page. I was like, oh, this feels like a hot take to me. And I realise now it's probably not a hot take because I think the conversation has really shifted in that way. But you but know what? You made a at point. At the time. Though. That's right. And, and for, you know, what information you'd been allowed to consume as well as a young person. I, I guess I want to know, like, what impact that had on you reading something that um, it sounds like it, it, it sat with you, like it, it had some resonance and what it is like to read something that actually starts to reflect the world that you think you know and that you see around you. Um, what was that like? And did it challenge your thinking at all? It absolutely challenged my thinking. I think, um, I really think about the most transformational moment in like my climate journey was when I was 17 and I had just finished HSC. It was like literally the week I had finished. Mm. And I went along to an AYCC New South Wales training camp. And I remember them like talking in a climate science like 101 workshop 
about climate refugees and like how migration was occurring because of the way that climate change was affecting environments um, mm. across the world and people having to forcibly move. And I remember the people running it were like, it was like someone from Sydney who's white and then someone from a regional area who's also white. And I remember being like, this is such an abstract concept to them. But I was like, thinking of my family back in Botswana and like the forced like desertification that happens and the way that animals and water actually migrates um, when the climate is changing and where the patterns change yeah. and people can't live on the places that they originally call home. I was thinking about my family in like the coast of India and the way that banana farming is like not actually super viable because the way that like environmental conditions have actually shifted across the country means that like our family's ancestral farming practices aren't actually relevant anymore. And so I think there was a lot of people who were talking about things in really abstract terms of like, this happens to people so far away, we don't know them. They're not really in our periphery, but it's important to acknowledge them. And I was sitting there and I was like, no, I know these people, they're my family, they're my people. And so, yeah, I think that really like challenged me. And I was ready to not go back the next day for the second training camp. I was like, this is a very like stark reality to be faced with and to put words to, yeah. as opposed to knowing the facts, but remaining ignorant to actually how to articulate that. That's it. And so, I did go back the next day. I'm very glad that I did because the next day was about solutions. And yeah, I think that really challenged me of like, this stuff isn't just happening overseas. It's not just like impacting the people overseas or it's not just impacting these like faraway concepts of islands sinking or war and famine and forests being chopped down and deserts like losing water. It's actually happening here. And I remember hearing about how Newcastle coal port was like one of the biggest coal ports in the world yeah. and was literally a two-hour drive from where we were at that point and it was like the concept of Australia actually fueling all of this damage that is happening all across the world and our role in stopping that was something that I think really stuck with me yeah. and really transformed my ability to recognise that we really need to like take our role in what we're doing in exporting, in burning fossil fuels and producing it in like this endless cycle of destruction mm -hmm. to make sure that actually we can stop those problems here right now. And it has such a huge global impact. That's it, eh? I mean, you say something that's, I think, just so important for anyone who's interested in talking about the climate crisis to remember, which is that it is the people who have the smallest impact, who feel the consequences of the climate crisis the hardest. It's Indigenous peoples who live in small communities often, um, where we see our islands sinking in the Torres Strait, where we see the rising heat levels in the desert and the impact on the animals that once used to go to that area. And then the flow on effect, you know, the impact on cultural practices as well for our people. So impacting community in so many ways. So what's interesting about that is that you've named that and it's, it's quite obvious that that's what's happening. But you were volunteering with AYCC when you founded the Western Sydney branch, that didn't happen until 2017. The organisation was founded nearly 10 years before that. How, why did it take so long to have a branch opened up in Western Sydney? I think the short answer is that it's hard. Yeah. And it's hard not just because the work is hard. I think it's hard that there isn't the investment and the sort of outcome that is driven out of doing work in Western Sydney or communities of colour particularly. 
a lot of climate work is funded by like philanthropy, so everyday people giving money or major donors giving money or some form of like money coming in so that you can actually deliver like community education programs, so you can run training camps, so you can bring young people together. And I think one of those things was there's a huge lack of investment in the work of existing marginalised communities to actually train up and bring up and build up the organisers from those communities yeah. who bring with them lots of like vicarious trauma, intergenerational trauma, who might not be able to work the full week, um, who might need to take more time off. But I think that work is really, really important because you shouldn't have organisers from other communities coming into communities that aren't their own to be organising. And so, yeah, there was a really huge historical lack of investment in doing the work around particularly like multicultural Indigenous communities. And I think that's only really shifted in the last like eight years, yeah. but definitely not shifting fast enough or the scale that's needed. And when that branch opened in Western Sydney, did you, did you at least start to notice a shift in the local conversation and how it was, how it was being handled, you know, not having, like you say, those kind of fly and fly up, fly out people who are not from the community instructing the conversation? Yeah, I think it was really special to actually see a group of like young people in Western Sydney who were able to speak to their community. And I think the principle of like organising is that your own community is actually the hardest to organise. It's hardest to talk to your own people and deal with the like accountability and the repercussions of speaking out. Um, but I think that's the most important way to actually reach out to the people who are trusted within the community, who actually have like the reputation and the the standing in a community to be able to actually have sway and influence. Um, and that happens in communities of colour, particularly where there is like cultural hierarchies of people who are like elders and older are like genuinely more like respected than young people. And so, yeah, those conversations were really starting to change when you saw that young people were standing up for like talking about climate change were like having those really hard conversations. Yeah. And I'm not one to like tout identity politics in any way, but I think you can see a really clear demographic difference in who AYCC and the climate movement was before yeah. the Western Sydney branch and after the Western Sydney branch. You really needed like young people of colour to stand up in very white spaces being like, this is the work that we really need to be doing. And like stepping up into leadership and putting themselves out there for others to actually see themselves in those roles and step up into leadership to follow them or to grow their bases in that way. And to this day, Western Sydney is like still the most diverse branch. I think it always will be. There's like so many young people of colour who have really stepped up in that area, which is really exciting. But yeah, it's like a really important thing to see in the conversations actually shifting of not just diversity on like a face value, but who that diversity can actually pull up That's and funny. reach at the same time is doing the work. Yeah, you said something really interesting. I think it resonates for me as a black fella who you know, works with, mostly with my communities and that's the accountability factor. And while that can make the work incredibly difficult because you know that if you mess up, if you maybe don't mess up or if you make mistakes or you don't necessarily go to the correct uh, spokesperson for a particular group, then it will come back to you because it's in your home. <laughs> yes. you know, they speak to your parents, they know mm. your family. And it makes the word harder, but it also makes the outcome stronger because people who go into communities where they don't have to go home to people saying, hey, what was that about? 
can sleep at night, you know? They don't have this feeling of I'm responsible to these people because they're my family, they're my community, but also I live and breathe the same environment as them. And that accountability you know, extends culturally as well. So yeah, it's like a superpower in a way. It's, you know, once you figure out how to harness and what it looks like um, and not to be scared of it, it's just incredible to see young mob really taking that power, I think. I want to talk about Black Summer. So during the Black Summer bushfires, had a devastating impact, obviously, on quite a large part of the continent, but especially in Western Sydney. A bushfire warning went out through your area in Western Sydney and people were getting text messages mostly in English or only in English, mm. and it was on their phone. So I just wanted you to kind of talk about what, what that experience was like and how you saw the community coming together in the face of such a suppose ill-thought-out response. I very clearly remember Black Summer, like the summer of 2019 to 2020. And a third of Greater Western Sydney burnt down during Black Summer, like during about an eight-month period, which is quite a big deal for two and a half million people that reside within Western Sydney. I remember there was a lot of moments within that where I think the climate movement moved into a really extremist and alarmist like tone of like, everything is burning down, like this is it. And it was like really missing the nuance of who is actually being left behind in these conversations. Mm. And I remember when my street was actually like issued and prepared to evacuate order by the SES, um, we just got this like very caps lock, very intense text from the SES being like, everyone alert, like prepare to evacuate. And we were like, what? And I think like for me as a young person who can like speak English, who can understand the context around weather changes and what's happening when the sky is bright red um, and has been for months, I think that made sense. I was like, okay, this makes sense. But I knew that the demographic of my street, which includes lots of people who are refugees, lots of people who speak English as like a second or a third or a fourth language, who don't come from particularly highly educated backgrounds, who have definitely never heard of climate change before yeah. Black Summer. Um, that was a really alarming and terrifying thing to receive. And yeah, I remember walking out onto my street and there was so many people gathered, like literally just on the road of our street. And it, they were just like, what, what does this text mean? Like, I can't actually read this. I don't understand. What do we have to do? And I was like, okay, like, this is kind of what it means. Like trying to communicate, I think around like seven languages. Wow. There was like seven different groups of people on that street and trying to communicate across them of like, this is what we need to do. But I think it really made me realize that multicultural communities are really being left behind in like the communications around disasters and as a bigger threat climate change of like not being brought along on the journey by government or institutions of this is what's happening this is how it impacts you this is what you can do to stay safe or get out of the way or evacuate if you need to and so yeah that was a really stark moment for me of realizing that communities were just being left behind and it was happening in real time and it actually was being counted in lives. It wasn't being counted as some abstract thing. It was literally lives yeah. being lost um, through Black Summer. And so, yeah, I think that was a really key turning moment for me of just how bad the problem actually really was. If 
there was a street in Blacktown being evacuated or prepared to be evacuated. Imagine actually having to go through with that and how many people would have just stayed in their homes because they couldn't understand right. the evacuation order at all. That's in 2019, you know, that's the thing. Like it's, there's still so much catching up for everyone else to do, mm. but you can see it right in front of you and you've already talked about why it's so important to un understand these intersections when we talk about responses to the climate crisis. I want to talk about um, some of the ways that the community has come together in spite of pretty poor government attempts. How have you seen trusted community establishments like places of faith and worship utilised in the community responses, such as during the Black Summer? Yeah, issues? when we talk about trusted community institutions, I mean like places of worship, places um, of like community significance, whether that's like churches, mosques, temples, or like community infrastructure places, like community meeting spaces. And I think, yeah, that comes with a caveat that those aren't necessarily trusted by everyone and that's okay. I think community spaces are like critical infrastructure when it comes to actually like adapting to and surviving disasters, yes. both in terms of connection of people who are connected to other people in their community can actually bring them along into those spaces and recognise if they need extra help or recognise if they need water or to be checked on or support actually getting there but the infrastructure within communities actually means that there's a place for them to gather and to be safe. And I think we're seeing like so many examples now of communities actually coming together in, in like the failures of government and institutions to actually deliver critical services during climate disasters. And I can think of two particular examples. One was like the huge like Kuru Mail response that happened in Lismore with the huge devastating floods that have happened over many years now in the northern rivers of New South Wales and like what the community has actually done to get boats out of like regular people to rescue people of the ability for communities to be connected to each other and the wider community to actually respond where the government just is failing or the state government is just like not responding appropriately and not preparing the services that are needed. And there's also like the mutual aid pieces that exist during disasters. So particularly like the Sikh community during Black Summer did a lot of the mutual aid pieces of like cooking food in like literally hundreds of thousands of meals in like Sikh gurdwaras, so temples, and then would go and deliver them to like bushfire victims who were evacuating. So they at least had like a meal to eat and were able to like sustain themselves over a shorter period of time and doing the critical like infrastructure pieces that are really needed that are often very, very forgotten during times of crisis. And so communities are really stepping up. And I think that that's the most important part of communities of colour in a lot of ways is that they already know what it means to be a community. They know the heart of a community is connection and social capital with each other and maintaining the relationships and looking out for each other. And I think that's something that government will probably never understand is yeah. how to actually build that and foster that in the long term when we need it. I think that's just such a good point. I think, um, you know, just speaking back to that example from Bunjalung country and the Northern Rivers, you know, it's still astounding to me as someone who's a journalist that it was not just an Aboriginal organisation, but a black media organisation, a newspaper that led the response to the flooding around Lismore. And 
they came out with some pretty public stories about how poor government attempts were, even when they did show up. They had military personnel come to the site of the Kremau newspaper and my beautiful Bundjalung sisters were there and they're like, all right, we need you to go to this house over here. We've got a lot of mould over there. You need to help these fellas go clean up. And they're like, oh, mould? That's an OH&S issue for us. We're going to have to get it assessed before we can go in. Mm. And they were like, if mould's an issue for you, why are you here at a flood zone? Like, go home. <laughs> it's yeah. not very useful. And so it was very interesting to me to see that even after that stuff was made public, how much the Career Mail and other community organisations have still had to lead the response, you know, even after it's been called out. And so you're right, you don't have to teach us community because it's ingrained, we've grown up in it. And also it's just, it's a responsibility. You're there, you're living there. And so if you don't do it, your home's gone, your country's gone. Um, I think it'd be important to bring us back to how this kind of ties in with your work at AYCC. So I guess just thinking about how you've brought in this amazing branch from Western Sydney, which you say is you know, the deadliest branch in the country. Um, how, how does a focus on racial and climate justice at the organisation create this framework for the wider community to work meaningfully with diverse communities? Yeah, I think there are really like three standout periods of time that I think about in the journey to us getting to this point. Um, and I think it comes with like the flag that I think AYCC has always been a bit of a pioneer in the climate space to actually try new things, to invest the money and the resourcing and the people and the time into doing the work that no one else is actually doing or prioritising. Mm -hmm. And I think that was really shown to me through the 2019 federal election when we ran multilingual ads for the first time. And to this day, they are still like multilingual ads are still the best performing ads we've ever run. Like in terms of like views and reach per dollar, it is by far the best thing we've ever run. And so we ran those in five different languages, like kind of explaining the civic education pieces of why it's important to vote, how climate change connects to voting and like the democratic process around like voting, climate change, money in politics, fossil fuels, like kind of drawing those links together. And I think, yeah, that was a really clear moment for me of like, it's not just important because of community and reach, but it's actually something that you can tangibly like look at and see the impact that it's having. It's not always like a qualitative like measure, it's a quantitative thing too, that this work is actually working and it's really important to invest more into it. And then I think, yeah, 2019, 2020, Black Summer bushfires, the like clear threats and the like the clear people who are being left behind were already people who were marginalised in communities, but the people who were doing the response work were those who were either both marginalised in communities and had connection to community mm -hmm. that were actually leading those responses. And that was in Western Sydney, a lot of communities of colour and a lot of like community institutions for multicultural groups across society. And so they were able to actually do the work that was really like being let down by other um, sort of government-led responses as well. Um, and then I think throughout 2020, there was like a lot of the Black Lives Matter protests that was sort of happening, but outside of even just like the protests, there was more public willingness to think about how race and other things intersected as well. And I think 
a clear one that came out of that was like a lot of the fights for land rights and a lot of the fights that Aboriginal people are leading and how that connects to climate change and what that actually looks like. And so I think those conversations around climate and racial justice really reached a kind of peak of people being like, what is environmental racism? How are people being impacted across society? Like the things that I think a lot of people have been harping on in their communities for a very long time actually were able to be like listened and turned into infographics, I guess, yeah. in a very like digestible way. And so I think that was a really key point of being like, well, we actually need to make sure that we're bringing communities along through this work. Like it's not just about educating young people, it's about young people actually doing the work in the communities that they're connected to and can uniquely reach to bring those people along too so that we're actually filling in the gaps that historically have never been filled. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's a really exciting like point in time for actually creating the climate racial justice work. I think it's taken a lot of work over a lot of people, but I think it's, yeah, the momentum has like actually reached a point where we're able to get like the investment from the community, the willingness to listen, the willingness to actually platform it and do the work that's needed across like the entire climate movement to actually connect these dots together. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's really interesting because I graduated high school in 2010 and we just didn't have these yarns. You know, we talked about it when I was back home on country on Lajumanu because it was getting hotter and we weren't getting Mali or kangaroo back in the same areas. But when you're in inner city Melbourne, which is where I went to high school, these conversations just weren't happening, for me at least, in 2010. And now, you know, more than a decade later, it feels like multiple generations have been born because mm. the conversation has grown so much. And a lot of it due to the just passion, the dedication of young people to say, hey, teach me properly. Tell me what I need to know because this is my future. You were involved in the school strike for climate. You helped organise in 2018. So I just want to know what, what did that moment feel like, seeing thousands of young people take to the streets and, and asking and begging for action on climate change? Yeah, it was crazy, is effectively a summary. Yeah, I remember like helping start the Sydney School Strike for Climate branch when I was 18. And we were literally just like preparing for like a small little action in like mud and place. We were like, there'll be a couple hundred people, like it won't be anything too big. It's kind of what we've run before. It's all good. Like we're expecting young people, we should like take care of them. And then the trains just would not stop coming. Like people were pouring out of these trains into Martin Place. And we were like, there is literally 5,000 people here on like the very first school strike for climate. It was actually insane to see. It was so hot. I think it was like in the high 30s and it was like like really like packed building concrete jungle space. And it was just like blisteringly hot. I've never seen that many young people in my life at that point in one space. Yeah. And everyone's just really fired up. They had great signs. Like a really memorable one for me was this kid who had a skateboard and had made a protest sign out of his skateboard and was like holding it up. And I was like, you've nailed it. Like, Brilliant. this is exactly what it's meant to be. Yeah. But I think that was really like a moment of capturing how much work and momentum had actually built up until that point in time of like huge frustration within young people, um, a lack of like education and 
the ability to access knowledge in other forms outside of school, the real willingness to want to do something about a problem that they're inheriting and are living. Yeah, and so it was a really crazy moment to like see that grow and grow and grow. And I think, yeah, it reached a point of like 1.1 million people in 2019 striking on a random Friday in September. And so, yeah, I think it's like that momentum of like frustration of elements of hope of what it could be, of wanting to do something, wanting to be a part of something bigger than yourself. Yeah. Um, that was really special. And I think the fire is still kind of there, even if it doesn't look the same after COVID. But yeah, I think like all of those young people are so special in like wanting to actually step outside of their comfort zone, take a day off school, um, like hang out in a really hot, heated space yeah. with 4,999 other people. It was, it, was, it was really beautiful to watch, you know, especially seeing like younger mob from um, western parts of New South Wales traveling, some on the train, mm. you know, for a whole day to come in for it. As we see young mob becoming um, more passionate but also raising their voices on these important issues, it can be really tricky at the same time because not everyone's families, the older generations, are welcoming these conversations in the home and it can make some pretty pretty hard conversations when you want to tell your parents or your grandparents about what you're doing but maybe they're not quite there yet in their understanding of it what do your family think about your work yeah i think this is a very fun question because i think people are often surprised that my family are like quite like hard right-wing people who like actually have moved from being climate deniers into climate change is like an act of God punishing the earth kind of energy. And I'm like, I'm not sure if that's actually better or worse, if that's progress or not, but it's, it's changed over the years. I think there is a lot of like nuance to how can like family and community actually respond to things like speaking out about climate change. I think it has also changed over a longer period of time where climate change has become less of a like partisan political issue and more of a this is happening what do we do about it yeah. kind of conversation but I think yeah for my family there's lots of nuance around like political experiences overseas and what that looks like with like oppressive governments and like militant governments that actually shut down protests or like are very violent or force people away from homes um, and so I think my parents very much grew up in that sort of environment of not really understanding and not wanting to speak out about political sort of conversations and topics and kind of keep to themselves in a lot of ways. But I also think that I inherited this probably from my grandparents and they like, I would say that they were like community organisers, even if that's not the terminology that they would have used. Like I think they very much brought people together while also doing like farming and fishing and teaching, which I think are like core essential jobs within a community and so yeah I think like the concept of like feeding a community off like the land and maintaining a sense of like self and connection through those processes is what makes a community organizer more so than like how they might vote or how they see the world and so yeah I think it's like interesting to look at the different like generations of values that exist within the work that we do around community organising and campaigning climate change and how intergenerational values actually really change. But I think the short answer is it's an interesting thing to have parents who 
definitely don't support this work. Uh, and they're like, hmm, when are you quitting your job? And I'm like, mm, probably not. Um, but I think that is like deeply rooted in care, which I think is like the fundamental piece that holds it all together. Um, like for example, when I was working really heavily on the Adani campaign, so like the Stop Adani from opening the Carmichael like coal basin um, up in central, New uh, central Queensland. Yeah. My parents were really afraid that they were hearing like a lot of news stories from uh, in India where like people who had Indian citizenships were being deported to go back overseas and a lot of those young people were being killed by both Adani and the government for speaking out against coal mining. And my parents were terrified. They were like, this is going to happen. You're going to get killed. And I was like, I think I'll be okay. And they were like, we're cancelling like your overseas citizenship of India uh -huh. um, so that there's no like possibility of being deported back to like any of those sort of extremist violent situations. Um, which I think was like a hard thing to deal with in terms of losing a sense of your identity and your connection to a place, even though citizenships are very silly, fickle things actually. But I think it came out of a place of like care and love of actually recognising what harm can look like and like to be able to actively speak out against something, you also need to protect yourself against certain factors. And I think that's what family does sometimes, which is, yeah, really a really interesting take on climate activism, I think, for my parents. <laughs> I think so. I, 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 yeah, I mean, thank you for sharing so much. Mm -hmm. I think it's yeah, very generous of you to give so much of your personal story in this space. And I, I do think that when you think about families and how they function and maybe not always being on the same page about things, being able to identify that care is, is core to the work that you do, right? Because if you can't identify or humanise that person in your community, then it's going to make it a lot more difficult. What's really beautiful is just to see this generosity from the younger generations to their parents and their grandparents for understanding how difficult it has been for them, especially as people of colour, as people who have experienced extreme racism throughout their lifetimes and not had maybe the same opportunities to come to this understanding in a safe way as well, because that mm. fear is real. That fear of governments is very real. So I guess, do you have any advice for young people about how they might approach conversations with their families on topics that they don't agree on, especially around climate? Yeah, I think there's a lot to do around maintaining the open-mindedness of meeting people where they're at. I think, yeah, you're absolutely right. Like, I think there's so much in how people have been able to access opportunities to actually learn and grow. And I think as young people, it's really easy to be like, you're old, you cause the problem, like why your generation is to blame. But I don't think that's actually true. Like I think something that is true as the alternative is actually that not all like people in that generation were actually thriving or making money off burning huge amounts of fossil fuels in the same way that's true today and now. And so, yeah, there's a lot of empathy that goes into talking to older generations of actually you need to kind of like position yourself in a way that's like willing to be challenged and held accountable and be wrong if you need to be wrong. So that's really important in bringing them along, but also like kind of doing the work to create your own community outside of that. Like I think community for people of colour isn't always like 
this dreamy utopian, oh, we love each other and support each other and we're able to be our full self and able to like be whoever we want and follow our dreams. Like, I don't think that's always true. It's about recognizing that you're going to get some things out of the community that you already have and you're born into and the circumstances that you have. But then also finding the community outside of that, whether that's with other young people, whether that's with people in your local area, whether that's like taking action together for something that you believe in as a common thread. I think that's like my biggest piece of advice is like really find your own community within other young people and people with like similar lived experiences because you're going to have a very different opinion to your parents most of the time and that's okay but sometimes you just need to have dinner with someone who you can ranch to and have Understand. that reciprocated. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's right. And then you don't take that home, you know, yeah. that resentment. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so just to wrap up, for you in, in 10 years time, and, and look, these questions can feel very airy and up there. So feel free to ground this whichever way seems relevant to you and your work right now. But what is one measure, not the measure, but one measure of whether governments and communities are responding meaningfully to this current moment in the climate crisis? I think if I had to pick one measure of like, a metric of we're doing it or not, I think it would be what level of fossil fuels we're still extracting and like using out of sacred Aboriginal land. I think that's like a really key piece. Like I think this has been a really bad week for the climate actually. Yeah. If you're listening in the future to this podcast, this week in May 2023 has just been a not a very good one. But I think you're like seeing really intentional and like trackable decisions that are being made by the fossil fuel industry and enabled by government policy under what theoretically was meant to be a climate election less than a year ago that is enabling the opening of new coal mines under a safeguard mechanism that was meant to be the cornerstone of climate policy to take us into the next 40 years. You're seeing on Wednesday this past week, on May the 3rd, the NT government opening up fracking in the Beetaloo Basin, which is just like, it's bad on quite literally any front that you actually look at it, whether it's like economic, social, community health, country, water, land, literally anything. Yeah. And you're seeing like these decisions being made quite actively and proactively, actually without the accountability, without the transparency, without the opportunity for challenge. And I think a really key thing that, I hope to see in 10 years is that we don't do those things anymore. Yeah. And I think that will be the real key measure of like whether or not we actually have committed to taking the critical decade seriously or not, or whether we have actually implemented governments in place that want to change things up, whether we have been able to like create the movements and the social license for governments to challenge like things like state capture where the fossil fuel industry provides like a revolving door of jobs from government to industry, from government to industry. And then if we take a step away from reality <laughs> and we put on what I like to call speculative, imaginative, excited caps, you know, when we start to think about futures that we don't just imagine for our communities, but we hope for, what do you see? Yeah, I think I always really struggle with this. I think I really pride young people on being like the dreamers and the visionaries of communities. 
Like, I think there's naivety in that, and I think that's a special thing to have. But I think something that would be really lovely is, like, people actually being able to thrive and, like, have the choice of what their life looks like. Like, they're not put into sort of defined categories of this is what your life will look like because you live in this certain area or this is what the path that's set out for you by so many institutional decisions that have made outside of your control look like. And so I think that piece around like self-determination for young people and for communities that are already like marginalised or experiencing the impacts of the climate crisis is like a really key thing that I think will actually bring joy and help us thrive in a climate resilient world. I really like that answer. Thank you so much, Grace. It's been a pleasure. Could everyone please put your hands together for Grace? (laughs) To follow the program online, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and to visit the 100 Climate Conversations exhibition or join us for a live recording, go to 100climateconversations.com. This is a significant new project for the museum and records of the conversation are going to form a new climate change archive preserved for future generations in the powerhouse collection of over 500,000 objects that tell the stories of our time. See more from the museum at Powerhouse on Twitter and at Powerhouse Museum on Instagram and Facebook.